episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi. I'm Tanya Thompson, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales from Black writers all over the world. This week, we bring you a post-apocalyptic story that makes us question who's really turning into a monster. Our author is Jennifer Baker, a longtime publishing professional and the creator and host of the Minorities in Publishing podcast, as well as contributing editor to Electric Literature. This episode is brought to you by the Nightlight Legion. Special thanks to our newest patron, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. For as little as $1 a month, you can join the Nightlight Legion. Just go to patreon.com slash nightlightpod. You can get instant access to bonus content, behind-the-scenes info, and a shout-out on the podcast. Now sit back, turn out the lights, and enjoy Expiration Date by Jennifer Baker. Narrated by me, Tanya Thompson. Abia una vez. That's how most stories began in the books Pilar's parents had read to her and her brothers when they were little. Or littler, the youngest Raul would say. It made sense tales should start that way now, too. Once upon a time, people weren't infected. Once upon a time, Pilar didn't wake up at the faintest sound ready to swing the mallet under her pillow. Once upon a time... She didn't spend most of her day staring at the boy in the basement, unable to go any further than she and Celeste deemed necessary. Once upon a time, a boy walked down the road. That same boy remembers similar stories starting off the same way, or at least this is what he told Pilar when they first met. My grandparents were good storytellers, he'd said to her and her alone. She folded herself on the dirt in the basement. Was on the ground so long, she didn't know if she was warming it or the ground her while listening to him recite familiar words. She drank in each one. Abuela. Después. Juntos. Abrazos. Más o menos. Familia. Pilar's fingers curl around the bars. He's still there, at the bottom of the stairs, His shadow slinks forward and back. He's taken to pacing. Last night, she saw the bald patch he made in the shape of a circle. With the sunlight fading, the swinging light bulbs blinking, it's gotten harder to tell how he looks unless she gets up close. Pilar still visits him at night, 
Celeste used to take the day shift. The boy woke to bark scratching his back, and Celeste and Pilar staring down at him as if he'd just been buried. The sun emphasized his age. A problem, Celeste said, side-eyeing Pilar. His youth was evident in the pudginess of his cheeks and clarity in his eyes. ¿Cuántos años tienes? Pilar asked. Ten was a stake to her heart. The same age Raúl was. During her first solo visit, he asked if she knew what was going on. With an arm out, he stared at the chains linking him to a beam. He was unable to hold back the quiver of his lips and his voice. Unable to answer, or unwilling, Pilar nodded. See, she said, enjoying the emphasis of the S on her tongue. We're in the aftermath. Aftermath of what? The old Pilar would have hesitated in an attempt to keep him hopeful, but hopefulness had no place here, especially if he was going to make it to Eleven. The end, I think. Celeste had been the one to spy him coming up the road with a frayed satchel hanging off one shoulder, a sorrowful mug drawn on his face. In truth, Celeste hadn't actually seen him. She had a vision, and this boy with a bowl cut was a featured player. From the moment Celeste announced it, her face pinched from the lucidness and intensity of this latest image, Pilar knew it would only be a matter of time. Two days passed when the skittering of pebbles brought Celeste's vision to fruition. The boy was skinny, too skinny. It was one of the first telltale signs for some. For others, it was evidence of not knowing how to stay fed. He could have been easy prey for anyone coming around, but Celeste and Pilar couldn't be too careful. Perhaps he used his looks to his advantage. Perhaps he was speedy. Perhaps he was needy. Perhaps... Perhaps, perhaps. Chains hung off Celeste's waist like a belt. When he uttered, Como? Coming down the road to the two of them waiting at the gate, Celeste frowned. But Pilar knew. It had been months since she heard the words that her family, neighbors, and friends spoke. Celeste knew much, but she didn't know another language. Didn't know the camaraderie of family and how family came before everything, because they'd understand you better than anyone else. What Celeste knew was the solitude of the before, and this helped her in the aftermath. The boy hesitated, watching them both. The only thing that moved were his eyes when he spoke. His eyebrows shot up and his head tilted at Celeste's questions. The two of them looked to Pilar for help. She served as a mediator something she hadn't done in too long. Celeste's lips made a motorboat sound. She turned to Pilar with the head of an axe on her shoulder in full view for the visitor. Hate to admit he's cute. Also looks like he could use a meal. The boy may not have meant to, but Pilar noticed the faintest nod. She asked him two days later if he could speak English too. In the shadows of his new home downstairs, she saw and heard his grin when he responded, Tal vez... How long are you going to look at him? Celeste asked from the couch. A patchwork quilt covers her to the neck. Her face is ashen, especially her cheeks. Where Pilar has the copper tone of her ancestors, Celeste's oaky pallor is all but washed out. Even her afro is limp, her coils matted instead of upright. Fighting for survival takes effort, 
and at the ripe old age of 20, it caught up with Celeste. Pilar, only a couple of years younger, still has the tenacity, more so energy, to get things done. The home Pilar and Celeste share is a cabin, easy to pass by without a lot of bells and whistles. There's dust, clumps of it in corners. The furniture is wood that creaks and initially caused them to hunch in anticipation of being found. A bar hangs in the fireplace across from Celeste's feet, and a pot hangs from the bar filled with water steadily warming up. The setup is something out of a pioneer book Pilar read where classifications of good and bad were made with people. How the aftermath would be documented would have to be different to include those partially alive versus those fully so. If this was how her ancestors had lived, then she didn't have that much to complain about when she used to bemoan her lot in life to her parents, her brothers, to anyone who'd listen about the responsibilities thrust on her as eldest. Watch her little brothers. Make sure the apartment that felt smaller and smaller the more her and her siblings grew was uncluttered while her parents worked, coming home late, expecting things to be done. When they were Pilar's age, they'd had to do much more with much less. This is when anecdotes morphed into lessons of family before them who had immigrated on planes, on boats, by foot. Some of these tales, her and her brothers were certain, had been modified to instill guilt and a hard work ethic. Abia una vez. Family came from the old country. Family was born in the new country. After a while, the fascination grew to consternation and irritation. With every utterance of those words, Pilar grew bitter at the responsibility on her shoulders, the expectation casting a literal weight resulting in her friends, teachers, even prospective boyfriends asking why she wore her shoulders as earrings. Her hands were dry and prone to cuts from the cleaning, the powders and bleach spray to rid their apartment of the occasional roach boldly skittering from its hiding place when the lights were off. What they had didn't seem to be enough then. In retrospect, it was more than enough. Just making sure, Pilar replies. Yeah, well, don't make too sure. The taunt and warning are an undercurrent in Celeste's voice. Pilar stuffs her other hand in her jeans pocket and pinches herself to keep from seething, more so at her own stupidity than Celeste's reminder of the one who was almost their undoing had Celeste not had the axe and a great arm. But that was when Celeste still had energy and vibrancy to wipe sweat from her brow instead of Pilar bending over her frail and patchy body to do it for her. Pilar mouths, Ay, coño! It was one of her mother's favorites. Heard that, Celeste mutters. She passes Celeste on her way to the kitchen. Pilar sighs at the lists in her head. That part of life in the aftermath isn't so different. Her routine was a running to-do list. That list hasn't shortened as much as become more specific, each item critical rather than expected. Pilar's body is wearier without Celeste's help though muscles are taut in places she didn't even know existed. Another thing that's changed? She's learned not to complain. As much. What now? Raul asked once he saw the last rise of their mother's chest. She looked like she'd been inflated by a balloon. Her breasts, stomach, everything up and then deflated as quickly. Eternal stillness 
After that, Raoul's lips and chin had trembled, his eyes prepped to gush rivers that flowed within minutes. Her brothers, the youngest ones, the shorter ones wrapped themselves around her like a second set of PJs. Ramon, a year younger than her, several inches taller, stood by Pilar shaking, officially mute. Their parents had sworn it'd be okay. They swore, even when their bodies shut down, their bones visible before skin bloated then puckered, shriveled as though they'd been left out in the sun instead of the darkness of their apartment. They swore this country had been so good to them and those who came before them. They wouldn't be left to die because of a mistake. This country, the land of plenty, yet sure didn't seem like plenty, as hard as her parents worked, would protect all citizens, not just the chosen few. But like many tales, her parents' stories were fabricated more on the happy ending than the real world. Like Raul, the boy asked, ¿Y ahora qué? On that first visit, holding up his wrists, revealing the leash he'd been given during slumber. Pilar had to look away. She didn't know what was next for him. She hadn't for her brothers. What she did know in that moment he'd entered their lives, Celeste huffing beside her, was that the chains weren't coming off. They didn't bother to ask his name. Celeste said in two weeks' time, it might not matter anyway. Pilar starts in on the dough she left out to rise, plopping the mound on the floured table as she stares at the glob before whacking it with her fists, indenting and flattening it. With each pound comes a grunt. Nothing is a quick switch on or off anymore. They need matches for the oven and for the lamps lining the walls. Celeste showed her how to make tender with still wool and old batteries when matches run out. They have to check the generators to keep things running in the fridge and utilize shards of ice chipped from the top of the freezer regularly during the unseasonably warmer days currently on the horizon. Everything is floral and smells musty like mothballs, but at least it isn't the other smell. The one Pilar had woken up to in her actual home a year ago. Sour, wet, bitter, like the worst vegetable she'd had to eat. The scent infiltrated the sinuses and settled on the tongue when breathed in. It was an aroma that sent the stomach turning, encouraged things to come back up. It was a smell she'd always associate with the aftermath, because it had covered her as she hid watching people she knew turn other. She made a new home in a partially burned-out deli. She couldn't stand the stench and memories of what was her home. With a butcher knife in hand, Pilar summoned up the courage to cut the necessary vein to end it all. Another deep breath. Celeste had found her just in time. But what happens when? If, she reminds herself. Celeste will be fine. She's not afflicted, only weak. Pilar has gotten better at this. She had to become accustomed to blandness, though. Smoky flavors no longer incorporated in a dish on purpose, but due to actual burning. Salt was hard to come by when stores are used as residences for some and breeding grounds for others. It was safer to stay alone or stick to small numbers. The beating and kneading of dough has been a nice way to work off some of those latent anger issues Celeste said she needed to check. Just like your mother, 
Celeste had said to her as she pummeled Doe within an inch of its life, just like now. What would you know about anyone in my family? Celeste pursed her lips and pointed to her noggin, which made Pilar angrier, and that, Celeste predicted, didn't help. Había una vez un niño pequeño. She trailed off, unsure how the rest of the story should go. This was when Raúl helped her, while the others did boy things, as her parents deemed it. Usually this consisted of beating each other with some object. I can only hope they're using something soft, her mother declared whenever she heard the shouts in another room. Raúl scrunched up his face, never seeming impressed by his older brothers and preferring to be around Pilar. You're practically his mother, her mother said. It was a role Pilar was both exasperated by and prideful of. Pilar hacks the bread with her butcher knife, enjoying this a bit too much. The blob turns into smaller blobs. She stuffs these blobs into bread tins. When she returns to the living room, Celeste is out cold. A painted toenail peeks out from under her blanket. Pilar sets the tray down on the table across from Celeste not making a sound, knowing Celeste could still give a pretty solid whack. Pilar holds her hand above Celeste's mouth. When air hits her palm, Pilar's body relaxes so much she can almost feel that her blood has gone still. Slipping on the mitts, she removes the pot and sets up the grate above the crackling fire. The heat burns her cheeks, initiates a line of sweat along her brow and upper lip. Rustic, she thinks, taking a glance back at Celeste. I know you're looking at me, Celeste murmurs. If it weren't for the fact that Pilar was somewhat used to this, she probably would have fell in the fire. Sending you love from afar, can you feel it? Yes. She taps at her chest as though poking herself. I can smell the bread. Pilar wrinkles her nose. It's not even baking yet. Celeste opens one eye, only one. Creepy. Pilar thinks to this very day, reminiscent of her mother. You know I know. Pilar places each tin on the grate. Stop showing off. Stop being weird. I saw you in the kitchen. She lets her eye close. Pilar returns to the gate. Just to check, she tells herself. Not because I'm obsessed or anything. The sun set. The moon is no longer hidden. It gives off limited illumination. The darkness means only the blinking glow of the bulbs, his shadow hidden. The only clue he's still there are his occasional tugs at the chain, forming a melody Celeste tended to hum to. How long do you think? Pilar asks. Silence is the answer. Celeste is fast asleep again, her mouth open, her snores low but consistent. Pilar listens closely. The boy knows better than to scream or draw attention to himself. Watching him is almost like watching a nature show, simply observing life as it happens, but in real time and closer proximity. The scent of the bread tells her it's done. Before she unlocks the basement, Pilar feels the pockets of the hoodie that comes down to her thighs. Assured, she closes the gate behind her as quietly as she can. Each creak of the stairs announces Pilar. She smells him, feels his presence as she gets near. She manages breathing through her mouth. He's ripe, and his bucket needs to be changed. 
She'll have to empty it when he's asleep, too. He greets her as he rattles his shackles to rub the skin underneath. He wears a sweater stretched at the neck. Open sores confirm another sign Pilar wants to ignore. Though the two bulbs above him flicker, he's still somewhat clear. Not so much an abstraction as a still life. He doesn't lunge at her like the girl before him, and he doesn't try to spit at her like the guy before that. His voice isn't the smooth and higher-pitched one from their introduction. It's turned guttural from dehydration, though the hose is coiled around his bucket and attached to the sink. She can tell he speaks partly from fear and exhaustion, a certain amount of crankiness in a child from discomfort. This is when Pilar stuffs her hands in her pockets, and his thankful Celeste hid the keys that set him free from her before she fainted and never really got back up. When, Que quieres? comes from his mouth, she has an answer, primed and ready in her mind. What do I want? For Celeste not to be sick, for things to be the way they were, for us not to have to be who we're not just to stay alive. For my family to be here with me. For you to be someone I can care for, instead of be cautious of. She holds out the bread, still warm, made with love and irritation as far as Pilar is concerned. He doesn't move. For every step closer, he takes one back. Finally, she tosses it at his feet. The boy scrambles and stuffs it in his mouth readily. Mumbling gracias is what hits Pilar. Him having manners doesn't make things any easier. You know what I did today? He asks innocently. What? I know you know. Excuse me? You were staring. You're always staring. Sorry, I just want to make sure you're okay. That's a lie. Her voice rises at the accusation. Of all the things she is, she knows what she is not. No, it's not. Yes, it is. You don't care. No one cares. Not anymore. He huffs, dropping to the ground instead of settling there. As though he's perfected the tantrum in the two weeks he's been with them, in the ten years of being on Earth. Even in the aftermath, a child doesn't stop being a child, do they? Of course I care. We wouldn't feed you, give you clothes. Tie me up! Ching ching of cuffs and chains. Pilar practically dives to cover his mouth. She chides him, spitting the words out in rapid fire that he needs to calm down. Fidgeting under her hands, he covers his face with an oversized sleeve that muffles his shouts of, Leave me alone! Celeste insisted he must know how to speak English. They were in the northern parts, closer to Canada than Mexico. How could he not? Even when she learned the truth, Pilar found herself irate, not simply a little frustrated with Celeste. Her comment incited those memories of what Pilar heard when she went out with her grandparents as a kid, then teen serving as their translator as young as four years old. Why don't they just speak English? The spite from those words, easy to comprehend at any age. Speak English. Loud, heckling, expectant meaning they wouldn't be served, meaning they shouldn't be respected, meaning they were less than. No patience reserved for those who couldn't or wouldn't speak the language. Those were the people who were helped among others in the aftermath. Pilar's family needed to adapt, not the other way around. 
They did, but that didn't save them. It didn't save a lot of people. Adaptation was what Pilar was raised on. Expectation was what Celeste knew. When Pilar snapped at Celeste, the boy must have thought he had an ally in her, not just in tongues, but in actuality. She wouldn't let anyone, namely Celeste, hurt him. She damn sure wasn't going to allow her to shame him. Instead of answering Celeste, she spoke to the boy. Esta loca. He smiled. Celeste grimaced. Don't think you can hide things from me because I don't know what you're saying. Pilar winked at the boy. His smile widened. Stop that, she hisses at him. Something will hear you and you don't want them to, remember? Once upon a time, there was a boogeyman who ate screams. He sought them out like mice seek cheese. That is one of the stories she tells the boy. It was Raul's favorite. She brings him close, embraces him so he knows things will be okay. If he lasts another week with no more signs, Celeste may agree to unchain him. Looking at him, there's an ease in his face, but she does notice his lips are as cracked as Celeste said they were in her vision. The last one's lips were smooth. She shakes off that memory, the kiss, and what followed when he snatched the keys, threw her to the ground, and... Thankfully, Celeste and the axe... The slivers of wetness that spilled from his body and stained Celeste's clothes with each hack. That wasn't easy to forget. I just want to go home, he whines, pushing his face further into her chest. His words break her heart. I know. It hit Raoul's toes first, which is why she didn't notice initially. It wasn't until he looked like he had a case of the mumps that Pilar thought about ending it for herself, too. She was no longer like his mother. She was his mother. And she couldn't imagine not having him around. That annoying shadow she'd come to rely on to get through the day as they buried neighbors, friends, extended family, and then brothers, leaving her and Raoul as the last two standing. Or so she thought. I just want things to go back, Raoul had said. Like their parents, so gentle. He slid away too easily. Había una vez, she began, and didn't finish because he stopped breathing in her arms. The boy shakes his arm and the chain. Ching, ching, thump. He pulls away from her, scurries close to the wall to wipe his eyes. The chains create a rhythm whenever he moves, making it so much easier to pinpoint him in the fledgling light. You're mean and I hate you. Bleeding through the eyes was the worst of it that she saw up close. Actually, it was the worst of it when it was loved ones. Your little brother's tears morphing from translucent to rose to crimson. I'm sorry. Just one more week. One more and we can let you go. You can come upstairs where it's warmer all the time and not just when the sun is out. You can come mentirosa. Pilar sucks in a breath. Maybe he isn't as bad as Celeste suspected or envisioned. Again, he growls, Liar! Spittle flies from his mouth, building foam in the corners. Please, no. She takes a step forward. Her parents used to say, Otra vida, otra vez. Pilar loved for it to be true. 
The aftermath happened the way things often did, in an instant, with little understanding of how wars began or ended. More rattling. Ching, ching. Pilar doesn't want confirmation. Really isn't inclined to stop hearing or speaking the words she's grown up with. But the aftermath isn't about wants. So she takes out the miniature flashlight, shines it on his face to reveal the evidence up close. He tries to hide, yet she sees. Sees the foam building at the corners of his lips, sliding down his chin, creating a grotesque goatee. As he covers his mouth, plump fingers peek out from his sleeve, distinct against the thinness of his face. In the heavy lids of his eyes, she sees Ramon jumping at her, not in jest, but out of a sudden animalistic urge to conquer. This image isn't a fantasy as much as reality when the boy pounces on her too, knocking her onto the stairwell, shaking its foundation. In a minute, she's covered by his earthly and sour smell. His fingers and feet kick at her in every way. Fingernails attempt to claw out her eyes. Spit drips onto her face. A knee is wedged into her rib, pushing down, 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 until she hyperventilates. Her spine is bit by the splinters of the stairs. Every limb moves at warp speed, inciting more pain, more stings, more confusion of what to thwart. Ramon had been just as intent. Enthusiasm turned acrid, no longer human. She's unsure why he was the one that turned first. Maybe because of his age, that his body could absorb the change the quickest of her brothers as the oldest boy. The roles were reversed. They no longer feared Pilar. They were the hunters, she the prey. Ramon leapt onto her back, teeth fixated then clamped on her shoulder, the burn worse than if she'd been hit with a hot poker, even though he'd barely broken skin. She throws him off and stuffs her hand into her hoodie. Pilar makes a split-second decision with the butcher knife in hand, and him a much easier target off her back. The chain snaps and rattles in their struggle. Celeste nowhere to be found, dead to the world. Pilar pushes him off with an arm. He feels twice his weight. The fury makes him heavier. His actions make him more dangerous the more speed he catches. Attempting to turn herself sideways and not make her ribs and chest available for target practice. Celeste's visions were accurate. They all changed. She screams, Lo siento, again and again. Same as she did the day she made choices that come back to her nightly. And sometimes in the day. Pilar stumbles upstairs, her top moist with sweat and blood. Celeste is wide awake. Her skin glistens and is slightly more color than earlier. They meet each other's eyes. This time, Celeste is the first to look away. I'm not going to say anything, she says. You just did. Okay, what I am going to say is, it's not your fault. None of this is your fault. Also... Whether she pauses for effect or hesitation, Pilar is unsure. I saw someone else. A woman. Older. Much older. Pilar nods on her way to the kitchen. She washes her hands and the knife. Gets another set of chains from under the sink. 
they'll need to be prepared. How this story begins and ends has become predictable at this point. But survival is survival. Bilar prefers that narrative than one where she isn't in it. Next week, we'll share our interview with Jennifer, who tells us what editors really want and what they really hate. Thanks again to our patrons for supporting this podcast. Because of your support, listeners around the world get creepy stories in their ears on a regular basis. Remember, you can join the Nightlight Legion by going to patreon.com slash nightlightpod. You can also make a donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash nightlightpodcast. If you're unable to support us financially, word of mouth is the next best way to help. Give us a shout out online on Twitter or Instagram at NightlightPod, or like us on Facebook at NightlightPod. Reviews are also a huge help, so be sure to leave a few kind words on your podcast platform of choice. Audio production for this episode by me, Tanya Thompson. You can find me online at mystifying or at tanyathompson.com. And to thank you for listening until the very end, we have a creepy fact for you. In the late 15th and early 16th centuries, a disease called the sweating sickness in England took over. Basically, it would start off with people getting really nervous, and then they would start to get shivers, like sometimes really violent shivers. Then they would get giddy and develop severe pains in their necks and shoulders and arms and legs, and they would feel really, really exhausted. Now, this stage of being really cold would only last about half an hour to two or three hours, and then they would start to get really hot and sweating, which is why it's called sweating sickness. Once they started to get hot, they would start to get delirious, their pulse would get really rapid, they would start to get really thirsty and get heart palpitations and pain in their chest. At the end of the day, they would be dead. Aside from killing its victims really quickly, the other thing that was bad about this is that you could get it once and survive it, but you would not develop any immunity to it, so you could get it again and again until it proved fatal. We'll see you next time with another story. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.